You're listening to the Modern Learners Podcast, and I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the modern learner's lens. We dig into our beliefs about learning, the modern contexts that impact learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge the status quo, and no matter how much we push your thinking, remember this, we're not asking you to change, we're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Dr. Nikki Newton. Dr. Nikki is a renowned education consultant who works with schools around the country on elementary math curriculum. She has authored over 20 books on a variety of math topics. She's most known for her work on guided math and math running records. In her math identity story, she shares that her books have been a glimpse at her own math learning journey. And she shares that she leaned on everything she learned in her literacy roles early in her career. Today, we talk about equity in math classrooms, teacher training, and making math relevant with real problems in real communities. You can hear Dr. Nikki's passion and energy as she shares her love of learning and math. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And just so you know, she shares lots of resources and I'll take all the notes for you and you can check them out at modernlearners.com slash Dr. Nikki. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Dr. Nikki Newton, to the Modern Learners Podcast. I am so excited you are here. As I was telling you before we got started, you come highly recommended, and I'm so excited you're here. I am excited and honored to be invited. Awesome. Well, we have so much to talk about today that I just want to dig right in. I'm actually really curious about your math identity. So in Modern Learners Community this month, we are digging really deep into math and our math identity and how math is evolving uh, in regards to curriculum and instruction. And I think we have to not lose focus of how each of us develops our own math identity. So I'd love to hear the story of your math identity. Okay. So it's really interesting. um, I've been teaching, this is I think my 32nd year. And I started out as a literacy person in California where it's warm. (laughs) Now I am in Connecticut where it snows. Um, But that has nothing to do with my math. (laughs) So I was on the California Literacy Council as a school rep. I loved literacy. I taught in the classroom for 10 years and then I went to Columbia where, you know, the reading writing project is really big. And, you know, Columbia is known for their literacy stuff. Um, I love literacy. I was doing literacy and social studies, really looking into and working with that kind of stuff. And then one day I went to get a job. Um, an Australian company had come to town. Um, Diane Snowball, who wrote, wrote books on like spelling and stuff, came to town. And they were hiring people. And a bunch of my friends went and got hired as um, literacy coaches. And they were like, go down there. And I was like, oh, okay. So I go down there. And the day I show up, all literacy positions are closed. They're like, oh, yeah, we think we're going to start doing math consulting, you know, and I'm like, what? I, this is not what I 
am interested in doing at all. I hate math. I mean, I'm saying all this in my head. I hate math and I want to have nothing to do with it. And so that's all they had. I was like, by the end, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a math consultant. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be a math consultant. I hate math. I better start loving it or at least figure out how to teach it because I can do it. But I, in terms of teaching it, I would not say it was so hot. So that's how I was like, I'm doing this for one year. I, I, can't, I can't even believe this has happened, but I needed a job because I was a grad student and, you know, I, so I, then uh, the rest is history. I've been doing this now for 17 years, going on 17 years. So and, I, and you started this journey on a literacy journey. Absolutely. But I couldn't level a book now if you paid me. <laughs> right. But everything that I believe about math and know about math, I would, it always goes back, right? I've written several books, but if you look at the trajectory of how I wrote them, you would see that I was learning how to learn math because the first book I wrote was guided math because I knew guided reading. The second book I wrote was math workshop because I knew reading workshop. The third book I wrote was math running records because I knew reading running records. And then I wrote a couple of books on word problems because I know that fundamentally solving word problems has to do with reading word problems and comprehending word problems. So, I totally tap into what I know about kids and learning from literacy and then, you know, do that with math. That is a fascinating story because I, I shared um, in our email and in our community recently that my math identity is uh, not so great. I copied every assignment in Algebra 2 from like September 28th till the end of the year. And I, at some point in that process, decided that I wasn't a math person, even though in elementary math, I was like a speed demon and my fluency was spot on. I was fast and I was a math person until algebra. But I have turned the corner and become a math person I see myself as being able to look at numbers and analyze data and ask questions based on the numbers and solve. That can be so fun. It and, could you know, be. But, but if you think about, I'm writing a book right now on mathematical, the, the habits of, a, the eight habits of a mathematical disposition. Because when you talk about a mathematical disposition, there are eight elements. And what's happened is perseverance has hijacked the conversation but, and i think we should talk about perseverance and girls mindset i think we should act we that's how we got started talking about it. so that is we definitely need to talk about it but we only talk about that there are eight elements and do you know what some of those elements are curiosity inventiveness those are all elements of a productive disposition and so when you talk about mathematical identity there's a really really interesting study uh, a couple of really interesting studies. They were looking at STEM, they were looking at girls. And so they asked the girls, you know, do you want to be a scientist? Do you want to be a mathematician? The girls are like, no. Like, you know, 90% of the girls are like, no, no, no. And they go, do you want to help villages get clean water? And they were like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, do you want, so they started asking them all of these jobs where they would need it. And they were like, yes, of course. So it's really interesting. I think part of having a mathematical identity is the way we frame math, even to this day, as it is this thing, rather than it is this thing where we actually are using it to do, 
You know what I mean? Yes. So I think that's interesting. And I also think when you talk about mathematical identity, you know, it's on a scale of one to five. And so one is kids that hate it, five is kids that love it. And everybody else is somewhere in between. Um, I always say I'm a four. <laughs> I always say I'm a happy four because my friend Christine is a five. She's the person that calls you up in the middle of the night and says, Nikki, I just found this algebra problem. Oh my gosh, it's blowing my mind. Let's talk about it. And I'm like, no, I'm watching the Spanish soap operas. I do not want to talk about it. <laughs> so I would say she's a five. She takes home high school, you know, high school math books and just drools over them. I'm not there and I don't know that I'll ever get there, but I'm a happy four. But this is what I think in terms of working with kids. The ones and the fives are equally hard because the ones have decided I'm not good at math and the fives have decided I'm perfect at it. I don't need to write it. I don't need to prove anything to you. I don't need any models. It just came out of my head. Both of those kids are hard to work with. And in elementary school, teachers are somewhere along that continuum. It's not a secret that most people love literacy. Right. And so, I mean, I think we all have to check out, like we do all of this growth mindset with our kids. Then you look around our classrooms and they don't like yell that we love math. So, right. I can only imagine how many teachers you come across in all of your travels and your consulting work that say, Oh, I'm just not a math person. Yes. But nobody, when I go to schools, administrators will come up to me and say, Dr. Nikki, I'm so glad you're here. We don't know anything about math. And I hate math myself anyway, personally, but as a literacy person. And they say I it have, just that fast too, yeah, don't and they? and I have never had an administrator run up to me and say, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. We don't know how to read. Nobody can read. I couldn't read the newspaper if you paid me. Nobody has ever said that to me. <laughs> the framing of being a mathematician. I just wrote a book with a school down in Houston, uh, Pasadena Unified. Brilliant group of people. We wrote a book called, and I really just edited it. The teachers wrote the book and the administrators and so forth. Um, it's called Mathematizing Your School, and it's all, it's the best book because they wrote it. I went down there and saw this brilliant stuff. It's like, you guys got to write a book about this, and, and I want you to write the book because it's your story. So they talk about, like, there's coaches and stuff that talk about the journey of getting people to really get excited about math yes. and all the stuff they do, so... That I, is, I love this idea of, of mathematical identity. You know, I've done a lot of research on it and kids, and like I said, I'm writing a book on it. Kids start developing it by first grade and by middle school, it's entrenched. And, and by third grade, they really have these fixed identities because they've been in school long enough. Third grade, they start saying, they have a mathematical autobiography. So they start saying, I'm good at it. I'm not good at it. I, you know what I mean? So, yes. but there are four indicators that influence it. And one of them is the teacher. The other is the parents, the school environment, and kids' own personal experiences. But the teacher can turn it around. So I yes. always say we have got to give kids math moments that make them love math. We have got to preserve their mathematical dignity at all times. Yes, I love that idea. I want to go back and ask a question that you can tell me doesn't make any sense, but you were talking about the eight dispositions of eight dispositions. Yeah, of the what? eight elements of a mathematical disposition. The eight elements of a mathematical dis disposition. How closely connected are they to the math practices? Well, they have a lot to do with the math practices. They're different, but you know, and I'll send you the link so you can put it in the, with the podcast. Yes. I um, have a whole padlet 
on the eight elements because I do I, I do talks where I talk about the eight elements. Yes. What I love about the eight elements is it's all the stuff that we're not doing in school. You know, like people will say, oh, we got to teach perseverance. So we teach the song and we do the poster and we do the chant and we do you know, all of that. But nobody wants to make um, nobody wants to make slime. Slime is one of the best ways because you know what? Slime is not easy to make. But yes, my daughter did lots of experiments. Yeah. My daughter did lots of experiences, experiments yes. with slime. And never once did you have to whisper in her ear, persevere. It was in No, I had to whisper, clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> I did a back to school night and the slime, we did a slime table where parents could come and make slime with their kids, but the parents couldn't touch the slime. They could only give directions. But what you see is that the kids, my point is this that if we give kids math that they want to do that is inherently engaging, then we don't have to tell them to persevere. Like I give kids um, magic, uh, magic squares all the time. There's a really good book out by Susan Looney right now on magic squares. It's called Ling and the Magic Turtle, I think. Um, or Ying and the Magic Turtle. I'm not sure if it's Ling or Ying. But anyway, it's about we'll a magic figure turtle. It out. <laughs> and it's about square numbers. And it's really brilliantly told. But the point is, when you give the kids the magic squares, they want to do it. They, I don't have to say, don't give up, keep up. They want to do it, even though it's hard, right? It's, it's what Papert's called hard fun, that kids want to engage in hard fun. Yes, I totally agree. And, and they want to talk about it. Yeah. So they they want to collaborate and, and talk about what's hard, because if they can get a hint from their friend, then they can move on and then they can move on together and then they can get stuck together and learn together and move on together. Yes. I love that concept. It's, it's amazing. So my next question for you is how has math education evolved throughout your career? So you said you've been doing this for 17 years and your work evolved as you went and learned. How do you think math education as a whole, either in the United States or around the world has evolved? Well, that's interesting because I have done, um, I, when I was at Columbia, I had a professor, a beloved professor, Leslie Williams, who her, one of her goals was to take us around the world and show us math. And so I went to India, I went to Europe with her. I got to see, you know, some really interesting things. Um, I've looked at math in Guatemala. When I first started teaching, I went to Guatemala to learn how to teach math in Spanish because I was a bilingual teacher when I was in the classroom. And, and this is what I would say about math, but in curriculum in general and math in particular, that, you know, my mentor Heidi Hayes Jacobs used to always say that math, uh, not math, that curriculum is very emotional, that people get territorial around it, that there's all this emotion involved in it. So oh, yes. we've got to know what the research says because the pendulum swings, right? And so right now, you know, the reading wars are starting up again and there's all oh, this, yes. oh my gosh, people are saying just the most outrageous things about reading and getting into these camps. And, 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 and the, I was talking to my friend Terry about this the other night and she goes, oh, the math wars are coming in. She showed me a new book about the impending math wars that are coming back. So there's always this either or, and I really believe it's both and. I have said this, and believe this, there's no one way to teach math. So I don't know why people are picking camps. There's a lot of ways to teach math. And, yes. and, and you're, we're trying to do the best for kids. 
It's so, so what are all those ways that are working? Like, so people will throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, never do direct instruction. But Hattie's effect size shows that explicit direct instruction has a high effect size and a place. It's not the only place, but it has a place in teaching and learning. So do small guided math groups. Some people say, never do a homogeneous group. No, there's a place. Everybody doesn't know how to count to five and the other kids are counting to a thousand. Pull those fellows. Pull those fellows that can't get to five and work with them for a little bit. You're not trying to keep them in that group forever for the year. Nobody's saying that. But you are going to work with them in their zone of proximal development in a homogeneous group for a limited temporary period of time. And then you're going to have a bunch of heterogeneous groups. So this, I hate the dichotomization of the curriculum. And I also hate totalitarian thought. I was talking to my friend about this last night. These totalitarianistic statements that it is this or that. No, it's not. It is not black or white. It is both and. There is a time and a place for everything. And anything can be done wrong. <laughs> so so don't, make, don't make statements about stuff that's being done wrong and then say nobody should do that. Well, nobody should do it wrong, but it's not that nobody should do that. Guided math is a great structure. You can do it wrong. But that doesn't mean you don't do guided math. That means you figure out how you're supposed to do it. I mean, it's the same with everything, right? I don't believe that you should never teach in whole group. I think you teach in whole group. I think you teach in small group. I think kids work in workstations. I think you should talk with kids. I think that there are, there's a lot of ebb and flow in the classroom and that, 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 that there, it's, it's fluid, that there's lots of structures that help kids learn, right? Yeah, have you ever read that book? And I haven't read the whole thing. Um, and I can't remember who wrote it now, but it's called Strategic Teacher. It was out of ASCD. And anyway, it has all these strategies. And what I love about the book is I think it goes over 25, maybe 50 strategies. And it's, but it's, in, it's just wonderful because you turn and you see a strategy and you can apply it. And then you turn, you see another strategy. And it's like, that's what teaching math should be, that we have different strategies to help all kids learn how to get the content. Right. I think what happens in my experience is people are looking for the silver bullet for yeah. the score growth. Yeah. And so when they find what they believe to be the silver bullet, yes. they must then do it with fidelity. Yes. And if you do the silver bullet with fidelity, you yes. sort of lose sight of any other things that may or may not have been working. And you yes. have to stick with the fidelity thing that you don't know if it's right because you've never done it. But the the company says that this is the key to growing your or improving your math scores. Right. And the thing is, I just really believe that what we know, and you know what I, where I really learned that from is when I first got to Columbia from the, I was really blessed because from before I even got to Columbia, I met some of the professors at, at a conference and they were like, come and see us when you get there. And I started working the second I got to Columbia teaching in the, the teacher ed program for pre-service teachers. And um, I remember, you know, we're all constructivists, we're young, we're excited. And my professor, I will never forget this, Lynn Goodwin, she looked at us, one time we had come back from looking at all of our student teachers and we were like, ah, oh, but this, this cooperating teacher teaches this way and all her kids are in rows. And this cooperating teacher, she's really cool because, and Lynn looked at us and she said, I need you to stop judging teachers 
on what they're doing and go in and look at why we might have placed people somewhere because everybody is doing something that's spectacular. So you need to like lower the, oh, if they're not doing it this way, then they're not good. And go in there and look with an eye for learning. And that taught me something that was over 20 years ago. That taught me a lesson I've never forgotten. Everybody is doing something. And that's a good way to get veterans to do the stuff you want them to do is you figure out what they're doing that they should be doing and you praise them for that and then invite them to do one new thing. But, but this, I, I think that's why I'm so, it, it grates against me when people are like, it has to be this or it can't be that. I really believe that you have to look and learn. Yes, Mrs. So-and-so has been teaching it for 40 years. She doesn't want to change. We're going to get her to change. But what is she doing right? What is she doing that works? And then what is she doing that needs to be changed, right? Um, I think everybody has something to teach us. And I think that um, there are lots of ways to learn how to do things. And I think we have to honor that. And I, you know what I mean? I think that, and we're, for me, I've been teaching 32 years, going on my 32nd year. There, the more, and I've written, I don't know how many books. The more books I write and the more, longer I teach, the more I know I don't know anything. <laughs> The more I'm like, oh my, like recently, maybe four years, four or five years ago now, I discovered learning trajectories in all of the work of um, Clemson and Sarama. And I was like, what have I been doing all my life? How did I ever teach without knowing it? You know what I mean? There's so much to learn. There's so much that we don't even know. The best teacher we can be is the one that says, I need to know more. I need to know more about that. What, what do I know about counting? And what is the next thing I'm going to learn? I, 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 that is just it. We all have- the best teachers are learners. Yes. And I think so often we lose sight of that. And when you talked about the school that um, wrote the book, The Mathematizing Your School, or that title that you shared earlier, When I think about that, I think of some of the schools that we work with in our modern learners community and in change school. And the thing that is having the biggest impact on their culture and the work that they're doing is that everyone in their their school is learning. And they're working on making sure that everyone is learning before they buy the stuff and determine what needs to be learned. They're letting the teachers decide, ooh, I need to learn about what comes after counting. So what can I do to learn about that? This is what I found, can you support me? And a lot of times we we come in, we as in administrators or people like me, come in with a solution. Yes. Our only solution should be to foster the learning of our educator. Absolutely. We come into a, to, with a solution for a problem that doesn't exist sometimes. Right? Yeah. And we tell everybody, you've got to use it. But I mean, I think that goes back. Don't you think that goes back to the essence of adult learning? Yeah. That adults need to, they find that in PD, if you differentiate PD for adult learners and you let them pick not only what they want to really delve deep into, but the way in which they want to delve into that, that they do much better. So you can say, you guys want to take an online course. No, you guys want to do a book study that they do much better when they have some choice in that. And also honoring the knowledge that's at the table. I think, and that's what I was trying to say earlier. I think it's really important to realize that everybody's got something of value. And if we look with a different eye, we can begin to see that. 
every, you know, most teachers, I would say, if not all, I would say most, most don't wake up in the morning and say, let me go in here and do the worst thing that I can for all the kids. They wake up and they're trying to do the best that they can with what they know so far. I always say, when we know better, we'll do better. Right. So what we need to foster, like you just said, I think the, the best thing we can foster as people that are in there trying to help teachers grow and grow ourselves is to foster the idea of learning, right? I always tell the schools I work with, read at least two articles on math a year, if not a book. I mean, preferably a book, but everybody does book studies and literacy. Read at least two articles so that you can talk not, and it doesn't get so personalized. Read the articles, and that way you can talk about what the articles say. Because what happens is in PD, you know, people get very emotional, and then they start drawing on their autobiographies, right? So yes. the curriculum becomes this very biographical conversation. Whereas if you are talking about the article, then you can say, well, Baruti said this, right? Or Bowler said this. Let's talk about what they said, right? And, and then that, gets, that, that helps to move the conversation to a space where we could talk about what, one of the things Heidi used to always do is pull an empty chair and she'd say, we're going to have a conversation about curriculum, but everything we talk about has to benefit Maria because that's who we're here for. Not how does it work with you and your schedule and how does it benefit Maria? Because she's with us K-5. How does it help her? I love that because it gets the conversation back to, right? Yes. We're not going to go to the zoo five times because that doesn't really benefit her. We're not going to read Red Riding Hood five times because that doesn't benefit her. We know you do it in a way nobody else does. You even dress up like the wolf. But we're not going to do that every year. So getting teachers to talk about curriculum with the student in, in mind. Teachers will tell me, oh, I, when I do a lot of PDs, I take slime and I make the teachers make it. And they say, why do we have to make slime? We hate slime. I said, because I want you to see what it takes to make it and the idea of perseverance being inherent in a task, right? Yes. And so I just, I think, I think we have a long way to go. I think I'm very, the environment in which we teach right now, the, you know, the environment, the larger context and then the environment within which we teach, um, people can become very uncourteous to each other in their conversational patterns. And I think we have to always remind teachers that we're all in this for Maria. We're talking about what's going to help her. So let's look at the research. Let's see, let's see what we want to do in math based on what the research is telling us. And we can be civil in our conversations, even if we disagree about how to make that happen. I think that's really, really important to set norms and boundaries for how we help all kids to learn. Yes. So it's the other thing that's interesting that you just brought up is the context. Mm-hmm. That we have to understand what's happening in the modern world, what's happening in our school context, in our s- local and state and national context, and what the expectations are. And I think that there's two things going on. There's the modern context of what's happening in technology, whether it be AI or, you know, algorithms that determine what we see, which are also very divisive and all of those pieces. And then helping our learners to learn that what we're doing in math class actually shapes the tech, what they're experiencing in those technologies. Yes. No, I and think we don't so. talk about that enough. 
No, we do not. We do not. But I think that goes back to, um, and when you look at the eight elements, one of the elements is that we want kids to understand um, the relationship that math has in the world. There's a really good school in Nixa, Missouri. And I talk about this in the talk and it's up on the board. It's in Nixa, Missouri and their school, it's, it's, I can't remember if it's K-5 or K-8. I've done work there for guided math. So I wasn't involved in this, but this was going on while I was there. They, and you can find them on Facebook. Um, their whole school runs a farmer's market that is amazing. They run it year round. So the kids make soaps, they make, you know, GMO free fruits and they make just all kinds of stuff. They feed the homeless because they grow vegetables and take some down to the homeless. They do all of this stuff of math. They, on Facebook, they ask the community, what do you guys want? What should we plant? Um, they advertise and it, they see how it has to do with the real world and, and can be self-sustaining. It's the most beautiful integration of STEM that I've ever seen. And it happens K through, I think fifth or eighth, everybody's involved at some level. It is amazing, right? And I think yes. the more we can do things like that, where we get kids to actually do things that make sense, that aren't contrived, but that are like real life math, that's when they persevere. Right. Well, and I think it starts with asking them questions about their community, what yes. they can do for their community, and then making sure that the math that they need to learn is fit, fits into the way in which they solve the problem for the community. Absolutely. Let me give you a good example. I was working in Alabama and there's a little boy who started, there was uh, some tragic event. I can't remember what happened, but I think a family, their house got burned down or something. So he started a club and the club was really just to give back and to raise money. So I was helping them figure this out. So, you know, Heifer International, do you know mm -hmm. Heifer International? Okay. Do you know Heifer International? They have all kinds of animals that you can buy. Now, it's not just heifers. You can buy ducks, pigs, all this stuff. So I was telling the group, I was like, you guys, this is so fantastic because, you know, you, if you, they, there's so much math in it. And it's about, you know, so you only have to have like $20. And with that $20, you can buy either six eggs or three chickens or five. And they tell you, if you buy six eggs, then these eggs are going to, you know, grow into 500 chickens in this lawn. Or if you buy three rabbits, this is how much they'll populate. And, but it's real life stuff. And then you decide what you want to donate to, you know, the village or whatever. That's, and the kids, it's a lot of math, right? That's a but lot of math. Kids are like, oh, this is, it, it, we want to know. We've got to figure out, like, what's the best thing to buy? That's the kind of math we should engage kids in. And that's an international example. There's plenty of local ones as well. Right. Well, and the question that I have is, are textbook companies and people who produce math materials embracing that kind of thinking when it comes to math in schools? Or how are teachers being supported in their efforts to support that child or that group of students who are trying to solve the problem in the community or support the people who've lost their home? What, what, what supports are in place to help teachers address their practices to be able to meet those student needs that might not be in the book. Yeah, I don't think so. Do you know Chad from, I think it's called Teacher to Teacher? 
No. He, he does, there's this program, I think it's called Teacher to Teacher. And, but Chad does all of the speaking around global math stories and he's brilliant. And what he does is he um, does projects on science and math all around the world. And he has teachers um, that teach science and math. So like they have a STEM girls program in Ecuador, but they take teachers over to see what's happening and come back to influence their own practices yes. and to help there. And so he does this whole thing around global math stories for kids here in the States. So he gives them global math stories that, that are real and then they have to work on solving them. And so he spreads the word through, um, you know, his talks and stuff. But I don't think, I think, you know what, unfortunately, the tests drive. And I the school the, schedule drives yeah. that work because you can't solve the community problem in, you know, your math block of 60 to 75 minutes or in some right cases, maybe it's 45, you know, right. you can't, it's hard to dig in, but you can do the, the, the lesson in the book in that amount of time, because it's designed to do that. But I'm thinking about it. Um, I'm also very connected to the work of universal design for learning out of mm -hmm. cast and Harvard. Yeah. And I can't help but think about the barriers to math education and what we can do to remove those barriers and to create expert learners in in the area of math. Well, and what do you see are the biggest barriers for students learning math? Okay, this is, I'm writing a book on equity and I've been speaking about this lately. I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated by ideas of access for all. Mm -hmm. And I wanna give you two examples. So one, I think, one, I think we need better teacher training because there is such a degree of trauma among the kids that come and the teachers don't have the training for it. And we don't know what to do with it. And so we end up making up stuff <laughs> that's not working. Right. So I think so. Case in point, I was in a classroom recently, little boy gets kicked out of class. So in my, um, in my book, I, I talk a little bit about, I say, where's Jamal? And then I say, oh, he's in the hall again? <laughs> because Jamal's always in the hall, right? And so, and they go, and then I go into, you know, there's all these stats around African-American boys, suspension rates, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But so Jamal got called to my guiding math group because I was modeling and of course he was up. And so he starts acting out. Now Jamal gets kicked out of class, no lie, 10 times a day. So he's singing. I don't kick kids out of class. Yeah. He's in my guiding math group. He starts doing all kinds of stuff, but I'm just kind of ignoring his behaviors. And he um, then starts singing. So when he starts singing, I have to say something. <laughs> We're working on volume, right? It's fifth grade. <laughs> I look at him and he thinks he's shocked that I haven't kicked him out of the group so far. <laughs> he looks at me and I look at him and I say, let me tell you something. All that singing that you're doing, I don't care if you sing, but you've got to sing about what we're studying. <laughs> so he looks at me like, that's not the response. I <laughs> and do you know what he starts doing? He begins to sing everything I just taught everybody at the table, spot on. 
everything about volume, the boy knew. And you, but by, but by the way he was acting, you would not have thought that he was absorbing any of it. He knew all of it. And I was like, I go, okay, I need you to work on the second verse of that. And he was like, oh, okay. So then they got up and they left. It was so funny. And I just thought, see, you know, Gloria Lassen Buildings writes a lot about it. The African-American boys have verb and people don't know what to do with it. So they kick them out of class. You got to know how to work with the verb. And so there's actually an article called The Verbification of Algebra. And it looks at African-American students in algebra and, you know, getting kids to learn it. So anyway, <laughs> so he goes to go back to his desk and do the wrong thing again. And I said, because his teacher has this uh, thing set up on the computer, I go, you might want to look at that video because it's going to help you with what you're supposed to be um, doing with the song. He goes, you're right, you're right. I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to I'm look that up. So he sits down and begins to take notes on the video so that he can have the material for the song that he's writing about volume. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what, what just happened from my universal design for learning brain is that the assessment methodology changed to one that he chose. Yeah. And so if you have another method of assessment aside from the whatever it happens to be. Yes. But we have to be willing to, to realize that there's other methodologies to do the assessment. Yes. And I think it has to be both ends because he's got to pass a state test. And he's not going to be able to sing it on there. So I, you know, I'm like, what I but like that to, might be the path to doing that. The song. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think kids should, teachers don't let kids self-assess enough. I think you should be able to pick your assessments. And I tell everybody, we have to do this one. And then you get to pick a way you want to show you know it. How are you going to pick it? Are you going to dance it? Are you going to paint it? Are you, what are you going to do? You got to do this. Because this is the language of the test. And then you've got to really do something else. You can get engagement that way, right? Providing access. Because I think really UDL is really about access for all. But let me tell you one of the biggest barriers I think is. I see. I go to math classes because I only show up during math class. <laughs> People say uh, to me, like, I've been in classes where they're like, okay, all the bilingual kids come. We're going to go now and do language in the middle of math class. And so then I'll ask people, like, what's that about? Why did the kids? When are they what, getting math? <laughs> yeah, what's happening? They're like, oh, I'll pull them on the reg later and kind of catch them up. I'm like, no, you can't pull them on the reg. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? They're like, oh, no, it's a schedule. And I always say, no, we are the schedule. There's no matrix. We are the schedule. We make the schedule. Like, there's a human being that makes the schedule. And they can make a schedule where the bilingual kids don't get pulled out of class. First of all, I don't really even pull out. I really think, I believe in push in, not pull out. But that's another story. But getting pulled out during math class, like, what is that about? Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand it. But it happens I, I really lot. don't understand it. It happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's really challenging because, I mean, again, when you're thinking about inclusive environments and least restrictive environments and all of those pieces, it, it's another one of those things that can have a significant amount of dichotomy. But it's one of those things that's a both and. But right. we cannot pull them out of math because we're limiting their access. And that seems counterintuitive if we're worried about the scores. Um, yeah, the other thing is when the other thing that we always talk about in my universal design world um, and its connection to access. Access is one thing that's really important. 
But the issue is, is that if we have access, if access is provided for all, but people don't use the access they have, Uh then there is no benefit. Mm -hmm. So we have to find a way to provide access to the learning and then make sure that the students use the access. Right. So that they can then benefit. Let me ask you that, because this is one of the things that I encounter as well. Okay. You know, in math, we have dyscalculia right, which is the language learning, which is the math learning disability. Now, everybody knows about dyslexia. They're front runners at identifying kids for that. But very few people in the United States know about dyscalculia. So when the kids aren't doing well in math, they're just like, well, they're not doing well in math. But it's a learning disability. And I think in a lot of countries, the way where I learned about dyscalculia was from my friend who's a psychologist, I met her at Columbia. She's a psychologist in uh, Argentina. And she was like, oh, yeah, I used to work with kids that had dyscalculia all the time. Now, dyscalculia is becoming more popular here, but it's still not to the level that we need the classroom teacher to know. And so I'm always talking with my friend Kimberly about this. Um, if we always joke, we're going to write a book called... Um, like special ed for the non-special ed teacher. And what I mean by that, because Kimberly's like a special ed expert. This is what I mean by that. There's a lot of teachers in a quote, regular environment, typical environment, whatever, that have kids with learning needs, right? And they don't know how to meet those needs. And they're like, oh, this bed teacher can do that. No, everybody needs to have things in their toolbox to reach all kids. And I think larger structures, we need to get better at how do we reach all kids. The the regular classroom teacher needs to get more in her toolkit around and that's especially and true. teaching kids with learning disabilities. Absolutely. And it's especially true because there's also, especially in math, there's kids in that classroom who are in their mind and their identity, not math people. Right. So we have to get really creative about the using the tools in our toolbox to help them become math people, regardless yeah. of if their initial identity is shaped and they hate math, or they actually have a learning disability that impacts their ability to do math. Yes. But we have to get clear on the barriers. One of the things, having been a special ed teacher, one of the things that I had no idea about until I taught math in the special ed classroom um, twice is that when they came in to me for extra support, I would ask them to stand up and do the math on the board. Mm-hmm. And it changed everything. Like mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. they, they could do everything, mm-hmm. but the reason that they weren't standing up to do their math all the time uh-huh. is because they didn't know how to transfer it from having done it on the board. And mm-hmm. then the extra work of copying what they wrote on the board uh-huh. to their notebook. Uh-huh. And so uh, being the techie teacher that I am, I found a way to take a picture of what they did on the board, uh, uh-huh. put it into Google Keep. Uh-huh. And now that Google Keep is connected to Google Docs, you just mm-hmm. open your Google Keep on your Chromebook or your computer and you just slide the image over and then you turn in the document with the pictures of the math problems. And but all, your, all that you're saying, I mean, I think this goes back to... that just blows my mind because what you just said, all of those steps that you might as well have been speaking Greek to the average teacher, right? No, we still, you know, there's a, there's a saying, um, 
by, and I forget his name, there was a video called Cyberpunk, and a documentary called Cyberpunk, and in the 1990s, and I, and I have this up on the, on the PowerPoint, in the, thing, the one that I'm going to send you, and what he said is two things. He said, the future has already happened, which is just mind-blowing, and then he said, the future, well, first he said, the future is here. It's just a highly kept secret. Then he said, the future has passed. So what I want to say to you in the example you just gave, the future has passed. You're like, that's what I was doing a while ago. There are people that have never heard of that. The future has passed. And it's a widely kept secret because I'm sure right around the corner, I read this paper one time and a lady was writing, it was called One Mile Apart. And what she did was she looked at two schools. One school had all teachers that had all certifications and it was one-to-one. The other school, the teachers had no certifications. A lot of them were teaching on, you know, CBEST. And um, there was like five calculators, you know, five computers in the whole school. And she talked about the, di- and, but yet they're held to the same state test. And she talked about the difference of one mile apart. And it always makes me think of that idea that the future is here. It's just a widely kept secret. And I talk about when I go to schools, I go to one school, they're like, no, we don't, we've never even had smart boards. And another school is like, oh, you know, we're getting ready to get rid of our smart board. <laughs> so both of those things, the future is a widely kept secret and it's past. Like what you just said, it's mind blowing. I've never even heard of that. And I try to keep up with tech stuff, but right. you know what I mean? Well, but do you, have you heard of, have you noticed a difference in having children stand up to do their math at a whiteboard? Have you ever seen like how empowering that is for some? Absolutely. Kids? And the thing is, remember that, what's his name talks about that? Peter Lilligendal, I never can say his last name, starts with an L. I'll look it up. (laughs) What he says is that when you put kids, especially in groups, on they're vertical, standing, and they have erasable spaces. If you just Google vertical erasable spaces, it comes up. So he says when kids are standing, first of all, there's an empowerment, like I can look at what somebody else is doing, and that the space is erasable. So he's done all this research on when kids have erasable spaces, they'll take more chances because they know they can erase it. But if you give them chart paper, they're, he said, they're much, they're much slower to task, and they won't write as much because they want to be really, really safe. Yes, true story. I, it blew my mind when I experienced it as a teacher, and now I'm a mom. And on, on my, <laughs> across the hall and across the wall on my office, we have a whiteboard because my children are not math people in their estimation. <laughs> but I am bound and determined that they're going to be math people. <laughs> but we have a whiteboard and we hang the, we have, we practice on the whiteboard. We take uh-huh. pictures on the whiteboard and we yes. transfer the picture to a doc. And I never, a teacher has never said, oh no, they have to write it on the paper. Uh-huh. I've never done that. And I, I always want to make sure that the integrity of whatever happened in my special education room, yes, as well as my home with my own children is that I'm not doing that learning for them. I yes. know how to do that already. They yes. need to know. Yes. So I want to make sure that I keep that integrity high Yes. But I also want to honor the fact that they've just done the work. They don't need to do it twice and write it Absolutely. on the paper. Absolutely. So, 
I'm going I to document that, that to whole process. Out, like, I need you to send me to where I can figure out to do all that you were just talking about. I will make, I'm going to make a video just because you inspired me to do so. And I'm going to share it with you and modern learners community because <laughs> I forget the future is the good kept secret and it's past because I often wonder, like I literally did that like five and a half years ago. <laughs> So you're absolutely right. I need to document that. And I will definitely share that with you. You know, we've all got to, I mean, going back to access and just like, that is so simple and so powerful. You know what I mean? It's powerfully simple, but it's game changing, powerfully simple. Yes, absolutely. So, and we all have to get better at sharing that. Yes. And it's, I don't think it's that we don't want to. And I, I honestly don't think it's that I, I believe that everybody actually knows that because there's some, there's some part of me that knows that not a lot of people do that because if they knew how to, they would do it automatically. Right. But it's one of those things we need to take the time to support each other. Yes. And I think that sometimes we're so worried that I don't actually know what we're worried about, but we don't take the time necessary to support each other. And you talked about this earlier about creating the experts within our own environments, right? Yeah. Utilizing the expertise in our own schools to level everyone up is really yeah. important. And it's we need really to take important. more time to do that. And, you know, I think we have to admit that we're not all math people mm -hmm. and give people the space to grow into the mathematics that is safe right yes. and i think people don't think about that so the, i don't think people think about the safety part when they're thinking about pd they're just thinking about i got to get everybody to know this thing but within that especially when you're talking about math there's a safety issue around teacher mathematical development everybody doesn't want to share in front of their peers everybody doesn't want to think in the group because they're afraid what if the group finds out that i really don't know how to do this you know what i mean and so it's like as as the people that are planning the pd we know i always i always tell people let's talk about what your kids would do but i know that sometimes you're really talking about what they would do. But there's ways to frame it. And, and I always tell people it's okay not to know. I watch the video five times. That's how I learn. You know what I mean? Right. Because I think it's important that they know I didn't just like wake up and know how to bar diagram. No, I watched Thinking Block like 50 million times. Yes. And that I call, that I, because people think not you, I call people when I don't know what's, what's happening. I write Dr. Wu at the University of Berkeley because he's like a renowned worldwide special. I write him and say, Dr. Wu, this is Nikki again. I don't know what's happening and he'll help me. Or my friend, the one that's a five, I'll go, Christine, really? How do you do this? I mean, I think people have to know that like it's okay not to know. You yes. don't have to know all of it. Yes. Right? One day, I was my first year teaching and you're just reminding me of the story. I was teaching sixth grade math and I don't actually know what it was. I think it had something to do with a fraction, but the smartest kid in the classroom asked me a question that challenged what I was doing and he was right. But when he asked me the question, I knew I was wrong. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I couldn't answer the question in the moment. And I said, you're right. Miss, Miss R needs to take a break 
and learn how to do that. And then we're going to come back, but I don't want to confuse you. So let's close the book (laughs) (laughs) and we'll come back tomorrow. And I really struggled with that for a long, long time. It bothered me, but I haven't thought about it in years. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, that might not have been such a bad idea. No, it's good to take a break. Hey, we're all in this together. Now I'm supposed to know a lot more than you guys, but I'm like stumped. I got to go back and figure that out. What do you do when you're stuck? I mean, we ask kids to do stuff that we don't do as adults, even in our PDs. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Dr. Nikki, this has been so awesome. I have enjoyed chatting with you so much. And I think that we're going to have an impact on everybody who listens. And we're going to just let people know that they need to just be learners in their math world. That's the biggest thing. Be learners, read the math research. Absolutely. So before we say goodbye, I'd love for you to tell people what you're most excited about that's coming up in your life you know, tell me what book you're excited about or what one they should definitely get from you. And then just before you go, tell me a little bit about your YouTube space. Cause you've got quite a few videos on there. <laughs> I, well, this is the thing I love to learn. I love to learn. And like I said, the more I write, the more I know that I don't really know much. So I was just reading an article from 1941 on long division. Oh, and the, I could have been talking to the lady about a class I saw you. I mean, you know, the, the, it, she was so spot on. And so I love to learn. I love to read, read stuff about what people are thinking about what's good for kids. I love to work with kids. Um, I am working on a series of books around, well, I'm working on that book on equity and I'm working on, I would really like to talk to you at some point about that. Cause I think yes. you could write a chapter in it. I'm trying to, I'm trying, I might turn into two books because there's so many people that I want to write chapters about it. Um, one of my friends just recently was like, Nikki, what about the LBGTQ stuff? Yes. Like you're writing a book about equity. Those kids need to be right. What about their voices? And I was like, you know what? You should write the chapter on it. <laughs> so I, right. I talk to you. <laughs> um, but so I want to write the book about equity and I want to write the book about the dispositions. I'm excited about those. And then I have some books coming, some more books coming out on guided math because I just think it's a great structure. So yeah. that's what I'm excited about. You know, I've been, one of the things I'm also excited about is math running records. Um, I have to tell you, you know, there's sometimes, you know, you, you do something, you put it in the universe and then it just lives its own life. So I would say math running records is a book that absolutely lives its own life and people from around the world are using them. So I get calls all the, from different countries, Mexico, Singapore, Bahrain, and they're like, oh, we're using math running records. And I'm like, what? <laughs> people call me all the time. And they're like, so that's something that's exciting for me. That's just a journey. You know, the math running records, it lives its own life, the, the fluency stuff, right? So I wrote a book on fluency. That's my latest book called Fluency Doesn't Just Happen. And then I'm writing, we're writing the sequel for mm-hmm. we wrote it on addition subtraction now we're writing out a multiplication division so but the point is all of those books are full of research because that's why i like writing because then you get to research it right you get to see what other people are saying about it um and then uh you said what what was that your youtube you've got so- oh i love youtube because okay 
You I love your YouTube get, because I learned a lot. <laughs> you can get on there and just talk about stuff that's fun. Like right now, I would say, what is the manipulative that I, I'm going to tell you two manipulatives that I'm really interested in. Three, I love the beaded number line. Yes, I saw that video. Amazing. Yes. And you had them yes. color coded in fives. Yeah. And I just, I just wrote a book on the beaded number line with my friend Allison. So I love the beaded number line because it's, it's life-changing. I mean, in terms of getting kids to see decibels and so and then Cuisinair rods. So my friend Annalise Record loves Cuisinair rods. I'm like, yeah, they're good. I like them, especially for addition and subtraction, but it's, it's not my go-to, it's her go-to. She swears by them. So we argue like, which is better, beaded number line or Cuisinair rods? But I have to tell you, recently, I have seen her do some things with Cuisinair rods that... Are, are mind blowing. Okay, so so I'm gonna make some videos because yes. I, 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 I like um, finding a least common denominator. How you iterate those Cuisinier rods over and over? Say you're looking for half and two thirds, so you iterate two and three, and you see oh the least common multiple is a six, and you you visually see it. It's like mind blowing. Yes, right? that's awesome. I saw her teach priming composite with the Cuisinier rods and the kids get it. Like, I was like, what is happening? I, so Cuisinier, I need to explore those on the YouTube, but I like YouTube because you get to get on there and say, let's play around with this. Like, what does this look like? Why yes, is it your, your channel has a lot of great things on there. Oh, let me tell you the last thing. I am beginning. Cause I've always been like, I don't really like those. I like the flags better place value discs. I'm I don't really even know if I know what they to are. Think about these place value discs that you know Singapore math uses them, but place value disc. I have always said I don't like them because they're not proportional, blah blah blah. But I think they're just kind of like the flags. So I'm, that's what I am on the horizon of studying. That's amazing. Okay, so well, thank you so much, Nikki, Dr. Nikki. You are like making my world. Don't hang up yet because I really have a couple more things to tell you, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on this journey to math with math. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you want to take Dr. Nikki's advice and start by reading the research, I invite you to join us in modernlearners.community. It's math learn math month in MLC and we've gone ahead and curated all of the most recent and relevant articles about math in schools and we'd love for you to join the conversation again just head over to modernlearners.community and sign up or sign in next week on the podcast we talk with members of MLC who are in math classrooms every day they'll share where they are and where they're going if we're lucky, we'll take time to discuss how they're making changes in their math classrooms. So be sure to come back next week. For now, have a great day and don't get in trouble.